Hi, I'm Anish Thavan with my good friend Puneet Purana. We run a blog by the name of stoicinvesting.com. This is our podcast series on decision makers. Idea is simple. Life is too short to learn from just your own experiences. To inculcate vicarious learning, we will be interviewing and profiling interesting people from different walks of life. Hopefully, this endeavor will shorten the learning curve for our audience. Our guest today is Mabain Faber. He is co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. Faber is the manager of Cambria's ETF, separate accounts, and private investment funds. Meb has authored numerous white papers and books. You can know more about him at www.mebfaber.com. Listen in as we talk on varied topics ranging from trend following, diversification, and home country bias. Hey, this is Meb. Hey, Meb. How are you? This is Manish Thavan here. Hey, guys. Hi, Meb. Puneet Desaint. Hey. Good morning. Is this in New York? I just yeah, business gave a speech at, at the conference, and uh, it's kind of rainy and nasty, so I need to get back at some point. So either either today or tomorrow. Oh, okay, okay. I just wanted to start with you telling me. You know, you've written five books in total, right? Yep. Now I just wanted to know how do you find so much time? I mean, <laughs> we we gotta learn a thing or two from you about time management. Please. And I actually, I actually don't sleep. <laughs> okay. Actually, the, the opposite is true. I, uh, I sleep well and quite a bit. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't. You know, I'm not spending all my time talking to management or uh-huh. or doing fundamental research. It's all quant based, so it's a little bit, a little bit easier. It was harder in the early days, but um, it's gotten, uh, it's gotten to be more of a habit than anything. So who knows? Right. So, what time do you wake up? Do you write early in the morning or something? No, it's kind of just whenever it happens. It's, you know, it, it, it's for me, I do not have a sort of manic personality except when it comes to writing. So all of the books, at least, and white papers get written within the span of, you know, a few months. Whereas the blog is kind of, that just gets written at any time. So it's a bit of a mix. Um, but uh, but I, I go through periods of writing a ton and writing nothing at all. We're currently now in a nothing at all period. Uh, well, I came to know another thing, Meb, that you, just like Wesley Gray, uh, are one of very few individuals who speak of trend following and value investing with the same passion. You know, that is a rare feat because, you know, what usually happens is that you suffer from serious commitment bias once you get associated with a specific sect. So how did you develop this such an open mindset to take both the fields in? Well, I think it's the same reason people gravitate towards a particular political slant or religion or whatever it may be, is they find an investing approach that fits their personality or, like you mentioned, their biases. Um, So for some people, that's value. For some people, that's trend following. But, you know, for Wes and both myself, it's, it's more of a let's try to be agnostic and find out what works. Right. And, you know, and, and once you take that sort of view, uh, it opens the world a bit to not only other strategies that work, but also strategies that are complementary. And in many cases, value and momentum are certainly somewhat complementary strategies. And it's, uh, we think, uh, uh, some of the best combinations you can find out there. 
so Mep, tell me, uh, I have a question around the CAPE ratios, you know. Uh, now, there was a wonderful book, I went through that, and they seem to be a wonderful tool to figure out overall sentiment. You know, it can tell you what kind of returns you can expect if you invest in these kind of markets. But it doesn't really help you time your entry, does it? I mean, what is cheap can get cheaper, and what's in euphoria can be further euphoric. So, and that's how trend following is followed, isn't it? So, how do you solve that piece of the puzzle through CAPE ratios? Well, we you, you solve it by not rebalancing those sort of portfolios very much, and and by very much we mean the maximum you should rebalance them is probably once a year, you know, probably once every two years would even be fine. And so deep value type of strategies, it makes much more sense to have this long-term perspective. So hmm. you're getting this mean reversion on a different time frame, whereas momentum and trend mm-hmm. plays out, like you mentioned, on a much shorter time frame um, over the course of, course of months uh, and quarters rather than years. So long-term PE ratios or deep value, um, you need to align your holding period with, um, with, 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 with this underlying strategy or indicator. Got it. So you're essentially saying is that if you're following a value-based system, you should be willing to take the drawdowns. Um, I, well, you know, depending on the strategy, drawdowns are a way of life. You know, you're not, you're not going to, um, for many cases, be able to escape drawdowns in particular, you know, there's many ways to mitigate drawdowns, but a long-only exposure is certainly not one of them. Right. Got it. Okay. So so I understand that you take your uh, positions in the CAPE ratio basis on your global portfolio. Uh, what I'm keen to know is how do you exit those positions? So there's a lot of different ways you can run any investment strategy. If you're doing something like a value or deep value uh, you could certainly sell when that market is appreciated to fair value. Uh, you could use lots of other just time-based exits. You know, with with this valuation-based strategy, what we wrote about was simply to um, take the top 25% of countries right. by valuation, rebalance it once a year, right. and and sell, and, and then just rebalance into those top 25. We've actually been running a fund based on this, and there's actually been very little turnover the past few years. So even though we're not using any sophisticated exit algorithms, in reality, because many of these countries that are very cheap, like a Russia or Brazil, right. would likely to double or triple before they would even begin to come out of the, um, out of the ranking. So time-based is one way we use in the value, but there's no other technical indications. Right. That, that was what my question was. I was just you know, thinking out loud. I was thinking that is it possible to probably running a trend-following system on them since after recovery uh, they can move a lot further more than their intrinsic value, right? Of course. So if it's an individual who's managing maybe $100,000 or trading country ETFs, uh, we think it's absolutely possible. Right. If you're an institution that's managing, you know, whether it's Five hundred million or five billion, moving in and out of a lot of these country stocks, whether it's Czech Republic or you know Greece, right. uh, with the trend falling model is is a little more problematic. On top of that, there's tax issues. You know, there's not as much futures on a lot of these markets, but there's there's ways you could uh, certainly 
reduce or increase in exposure through various derivatives. Uh, but but for certainly smaller traders, we think absolutely adding trend following component, you know, like we showed in our paper, uh, which one was it? It was either the Black Swan or the, the Sir Isaac Newton paper that talked about trend following and about every market we could find. And it, you know, it works. It works well in all of them. Uh, Matt, tell me one thing. Uh, you have made a portfolio which is 50% momentum, 50% value. Um, have you ever tried to do backtesting on applying a momentum to value stocks rather than separating the two separately and then you going about it? If you look at the academic literature, it's somewhat of a mix. You know, there's some that you'll find that says one's better and some you find that says the other's better. I think you're kind of capturing the same thing. Right. at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of these strategies, one of the things that we always tell people that's important that I don't think they always focus on is that, you know, it's not just about buying the cheapest stocks or the stocks with the best momentum. It's also about avoiding the expensive stocks or avoiding the stocks with the worst momentum. Right. So a lot of these strategies simply, it's not that you're just picking the bottom of the barrel, the best stuff. It's also that you're, avoiding the worst stuff. So a lot of these ranking systems, um, whether you do value first and then momentum or take the average of both, you know, we think both both will work out over time. So, so, but, uh, uh, so let me put it this way. Uh, when you were doing the backtesting, you did one on value portfolio, then you did one on momentum portfolios, and then you, you figured out that the best combination is, you know, a combination of the two. Uh, in terms of num- the companies which fit in value bill and then the companies which fit in momentum bill. But have you gone doing the backtesting where you have selected the value companies and then uh, taking the decision of buying and selling only on the basis of momentum strategies or some kind of trend following strategy? Yeah, they both they both they both both work. You know, we we run a shareholder yield fund that essentially has that methodology where it's going through a value and then quality screen, and the final screen is a momentum screen for the new oh. picks. So yeah, it's you know I, I don't. At least I haven't been convinced or found any research that shows that one is vastly preferable over the other, but they seem to both work. Okay, okay. Another probably the problem with is running both of them, you don't know where the alpha is coming from, right? Um, I don't know if I ever know where the alpha is coming from. <laughs> at least not, at least not ahead of time. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I'm always, I'm always open to be convinced. If you guys find some great white papers or. Anything that uh, that runs this, uh, send it over. I'll, I'm happy to take a look. Okay, okay. Another another thing, Meb, uh, as far as the Cape ratio-based global portfolio is concerned, thinking that instead of buying the ETFs, uh, which you probably do, uh, what if you use the shareholding yield to select your stocks? Would, would that make a difference and give you an alpha? Uh, so in our actual fund, the way that we run it is that we are um, – we select top down the countries and yeah. then we take the top 30 market cap stocks within each country okay. and do run a value composite within those countries. And so that has the effect you're talking about. It takes the top 10 stocks in each. Right. So it's not only picking it top down then within the country, you're taking the best, best of the top 30 as long as they're over a certain size. So yeah, it's uh, we essentially do what, what you're talking about. Got and that it. historically, we didn't put it in the book, but that adds tilting towards value adds about another hundred basis points of return over time. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I wanted to know about the shareholder yield, uh, uh, Mabain. Uh, first of all, is, is this your invention or was it doing the rounds earlier as well? <clears throat> shareholder yield, the concept, has been around for a long time. Okay. And there were some academic papers. Uh, you know, I've been writing about it on the blog for at least 10 years. Okay. So there's people that have been talking about it. The, the academic literature usually refers to it as net payout yield. Right. And it was popularized, to my knowledge, as shareholder yield by William Priest, multi-billion dollar money manager, okay. who looks at shareholder yield globally. And so there's not a lot. I mean, it's, it's one of the most nonsensical investing strategies where investors simply look at dividends or buybacks. Right. Most, most simply look at dividends without looking at buybacks. But since there's only five things a company can do with their cash, right. you know, it's, it's finance 101 is that dividends and buybacks are the same thing. And so ignoring, ignoring sort of taxation and valuation. But if you apply a value lens, buybacks are even more powerful. And, and Buffett says something along the lines that, you know, if a, if a company's trading far below intrinsic value, there's no better use of cash than, than buybacks. And so shareholder yield is sort of the combination of the two. It's important to use net buybacks to account for what, what companies uh, are issuing shares as well. So, but, Matt, do you, do you uh, keep in account the value part of it? Because uh, uh, I want to get your input on this buyback thing. Share buybacks are a great capital allocation only if the purchase is made at beer markets or distress, right? And we know from history that majority of buybacks are done in good times. So doesn't it defeat the purpose? So buybacks, much like M&A, tend to be a bit cyclical on aggregate where a lot of companies are buying back in bull markets and closer to peaks and less in, in market bottoms. However, if you look at a lot of the research that shows the high conviction buybacks, so the buybacks were there, buying back 5% or more of the stock in any given year or even 10%. And Patrick O'Shaughnessy has done a lot of research here. Right. They, they, uh, they, they are usually at, at valuation discounts to the overall market. But you bring up a good point in that it's totally nonsensical if you're running a dividend or a buyback strategy to not include valuation because then you're just buying expensive stocks Mm-hmm. which is totally meaningless. And so if, right now is a great example because as many billions of dollars have flowed into U.S. dividend stocks over the past 15 years, right. a lot of those stocks are now very expensive. True. And so if you don't have a valuation filter, you're simply buying expensive stocks that are distributing a lot of their earnings as cash, and that's a really terrible way to invest. And so including a valuation filter either before or after you screen for shareholder yield or even dividends and buybacks, uh, we think is is paramount. Right, right. Uh, and in the shareholding yield portfolio, uh, of course, diversification is very important, isn't it, to avoid one stock risk? How much diversification do you recommend? You know, I mean, I think if it's a, a fund, fifty to a hundred is plenty. Individual could probably get a, get away with twenty, or if they feel like rolling the dice, even ten. Okay. Okay. Uh, Matt, just a simple question. Um, you know, uh, David Swenson has been very popular in saying that you know most of the returns uh, generally are because of the asset allocation and not primarily because of stock selection. Um, 
what's your view on that? Uh, do you think that asset allocation is more important than stock selection per se? Or uh, do you have a different view on that one? Well, you know, most <clears throat> most people on aggregate, you know, the market average is there is no alpha. So stock selection doesn't matter at all, nor does market timing, nor does asset allocation for the global market in, in, uh, investor. Okay. So most, most people offer negative alpha. Uh, most investors, uh, individual investors. So, um, you know, we looked at this a few different ways. One is if you have a process or rules-based system that makes sense, then that, that certainly can add some performance. And, and whether that's through asset allocation, you know, we've written a book called Global Asset Allocation that talks about asset allocation where over the long run your, your allocation doesn't matter that much. Okay. But over the over the short run, of course, it can bounce around anywhere. Okay. And as far as stock selection methodologies, it completely depends on the approach and the ability of an investor to, to stick with it. Okay. So, so essentially, uh, what you're saying is that in the long run, asset allocation is not that important. Well, it, it is important. And so it, the, here's the list of importance. So if you have an asset allocation, as long as you have some global stocks, some global bonds, and some real assets – the exact percentages don't matter that much. Um, what does matter, however, vastly more, is how much you pay in fees and how much emotional involvement you have in the portfolio and chase returns. We showed in the book that over 15 asset allocation strategies from the world's most famous investors, Ray Dalio, Swenson you mentioned, right. um, Rob Arnott, and we back-tested their strategies to the 1970s and showed how they performed. And across the board, those 15 strategies clustered within one percentage point annual return difference from each other. So incredibly, incredibly close returns. Now, in any given year, they would be all over the place, and they had vastly different allocations. So some had gold, some didn't. Some had a lot in emerging markets, some had very little. But what did make a big difference is how much you paid in fees. So if you paid 1.25% of fees on that portfolio, which is the average mutual fund here in the U.S., that takes the best-performing asset allocation over that period, L. Arians, and makes it almost as bad as the worst. Wow. So that's why we were saying that the allocation matters, but you got to stick with it. And if you start to chase performance every every year or even every five years, chances are you're going to destroy, destroy the performance. And, and will your answer differ, uh, let's say, if I don't talk about global investing, we just talk about country-specific, let's say, in the U.S., will your answer be different or it will be the same? Sorry, say again? I'm saying if, uh, if I change the question from global investing to only country-specific investing, let's say only U.S., will your answer be same or will your answer be different in this case? Well, we, we always say the starting point should be the global market portfolio, and, and most investors have nothing remotely that resembles the global market portfolio. So for U.S. investors, it means they probably have way too much in the U.S. Indian investors, they probably have way too much in India. Right. Same thing, Italy, U.K., Australia, this, this home country bias right. can be very, uh, very detrimental to the portfolio. So the starting point should be the global market portfolio, and then if you feel you have some ability to add value on top of that, whether it's tilting towards value, tilting towards momentum, adding managed futures, whatever it may be, we think those make sense. But the starting point should always be the global global market portfolio. Right. But, but isn't there a rational reason for this home country bias? The simple thing being that, first of all, 
the regulatory uh, issues which come for individual I'm not talking about the global funds but uh, let's say uh, high net worth individuals uh, when they do invest outside the country there are a lot of regulatory hassles that come into picture there are limitations to the amount you can invest in at least that's the case in India so uh, do you think that is one of the big reasons why that bias exists at the first place? Well I think the main reason it exists is that it's what's familiar you know I think it's yeah. the people Fine. Want to invest in with what they know. The same reason that you know you, I my favorite sports team is the Denver Broncos, and you guys probably have your favorite cricket team, and you cheer for them, and you know that's the way that it is. But the, the same way, it's what it's a, it's what you know, and b, yeah, it could be an access issue in some countries for sure. I I I agree with you, Meb. I don't think Puneet there is an access issue in India. If you really look around, there are ETFs you can buy. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Meb, in one of your blogs, you mentioned uh, one-third global stocks, one-third global bonds, and one-third trend following is a pretty hard strategy to beat. Uh, can you please elaborate on that? Because I have a follow-up question after this. Well, I'm writing a paper right now called the Trinity Portfolio. That's not done yet, but it, it basically takes a allocation and kind of adds one thing at a time and show how it, it either affects or doesn't affect return. So it starts out with traditional 60-40, then adds foreign allocations, then adds real assets, then does tilts towards value and momentum. And at that point, you have a pretty darn good portfolio. But usually the biggest thing you can add to that portfolio at that point uh, is some form of trend. So whether you do trend on the entire portfolio and trade each asset class separately or you add a buy-and-hold allocation to a dual-momentum fund or a managed futures fund, those types of strategies tend to be one of the best non-correlated hedging type of strategies um, to a traditional long-only portfolio. Okay, I, I think you've answered my second question. What I wanted to know was why uh, be in all, all of them at the same time? Why not rotation based on relative strength or dual-momentum as Gary Antonacci uh, suggested. Yeah, that's exactly what you would do. So there's two ways to do it. One, where you're actually explicitly trading all the underlying assets. And for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable. So another way to do it is to buy a fund that does dual momentum or manage futures that will take care of it for you. So it's kind of a um, same, same sort of approach, two different ways to do it. Right, right. Got it. Uh, by the way, did you get a chance to go through Gary Antonacci's dual momentum? And uh, I wanted to know what similarities and differences did you notice between that and your timing model? Um, I actually talked to Gary in person two days ago in New York. We were hanging out here. Um, I've read his book. It's a good book. It, it's very similar to our old paper, the aggressive version of the paper, which ranks assets but only buys them if they're above their long-term trend, which we think is a very sensible way of, of approaching a momentum portfolio. A lot of the relative strength style portfolios don't uh, don't have that chin following exit or move to cash, so they often right. simply rotate in long only, and for a long bear market, that can be very, uh, very painful. True, true. Uh, Matt, uh, what's your view on the shorting of the bad, uh, you know, companies uh, so, you know, in your book, you also talk about capital destroyers, you know, the companies which have maybe negative shareholder yield or something like that. And um, do you combine the long strategy with the short strategy and have you done some back testing or what's your view there? Or you prefer to have only long positions? Shorting stuff because 
there's always the times. So ignoring the structural challenge of shorting and paying for borrowing the the shorts, um, actual just shorting the companies is tough because there's many periods where the longs will go down and the shorts will go up. And so not only are you now losing on one side, you're losing on both. And so particularly at market inflection points, like the bottom in 08 um, or, you know, the top in 07, you have times when things do very, very poorly for the both sides of the system. So a long-short approach often has very, very poor drawdown in, in volatility numbers. Um, however, if you're doing something and you need some hedging to a traditional long-only portfolio, shorting can make sense. Right. But in general, we think it's a, a pretty pretty challenging for most people. Right, right. In fact, I asked this question to Gary as well, uh, that instead of moving to cash, uh, can shorting or hedging be an option as well? Yeah, and my opinion on that is that if you were to say, map design the best possible portfolio, in my mind, that would be the moving to cash. But if you were to say, Meb, I have a, you know, retirement account over here that I can't touch that's long only and I want something that diversifies that, then in actuality the long short makes more sense because it's a diversifier and it, it acts as a um, a nice balance to the traditional long only portfolio. Right, right. Now I know Meb that you have uh, total skin in the game and uh, in one of your latest blogs, you mentioned that you have 45% of your capital in tactical trend-following strategy and 55% in buy and hold, right? Uh, my question is, would this 55% in buy and hold change substantially if A, uh, let's say you were not as young as today, and B, if more percentage of your total net worth was into equity? So a couple, yeah, of course. So there's a lot of levers for people. You know, age is one, but I think age is, is overrated for the, the main reason being is that it's more of a personality question with what people can sleep with. You know, I know incredibly tolerant uh, 70-year-olds and incredibly intolerant 20-year-olds for risk. And so, yeah. and, you know, whether or not, you know, on math it says you should own 100% equities as a 20-year-old, if you're going to at the first 20% or, God forbid, 50 or 80% drawdown sell all of them, then <laughs> it's clearly the wrong portfolio. And so it's really about finding what lets you sleep at night. And it's tough because a lot of people think they have a much higher risk tolerance, so they go through it. True. And typically a lot of the equity drawdowns coincide with economic draw drawdowns. So a lot of times not only do you lose half your portfolio, you also lost your job and have no prospects of getting another one. So there's a number of factors at play. For me, um, <clears throat> the things that would shift that portfolio a little bit, and I don't plan to really shift it at all, is if US, or sorry, if global equities declined another 30 50 60%, I would add more towards the buy and hold side. Um, I don't think that's probably going to happen, but if it did, uh, I would certainly add more. And same thing, as, as markets increased, if, if the U.S. market or foreign markets doubled and tripled from here, I would reduce that amount. But we, we did an old blog post, going back to your shorting question that ties into this too, that something is called something like fixing market neutral. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to have a short approach, it makes very basic common sense to me that as a broad market declines, you simply 
take off some of the shorts. So if the market goes down 20, then 40, then 60 percent, you reduce your total short exposure. And I think that's a very sensible approach. And, and the same thing on the flip side, as markets go down, you could increase your long exposure as well. Fair enough, fair enough. But maybe I have, you know, uh, I have read four books which you have written. I'm yet to read your fifth one. Um, you know, the Invest with the House, and it's it's uh, essentially the whole idea of cloning. Um, I'm sure you mentioned this in the book, but can you give me, in your judgment, what is the most common mistake people do when they're cloning? Cloning is a strategy which has been there for a very long, long time. And, you know, a lot of websites, they have... Uh, portfolios of uh, the fund managers and all that stuff. What is it that it's, you recommend? It's, it's the same mistake they make with investing in general, which is chasing performance. And they, my favorite example of that is uh, the mutual fund manager of the decade in the U.S. equities was Ken Hebner's CGM fund. And he did something like 12 or 14% a year in the 2000s, which was incredible. And so what happened, of course, is assets ballooned, tons of people piled in, you know, after he printed a 70% up year. And then what happened is he, he then had a 70% drawdown, had these huge losses, everyone sold. And so if you look at the dollar weight return in that fund, it wasn't 14% a year. It was something like it was negative. Wow. So the average investor lost money in that fund. And so this it's the same thing that we're talking about here is that, you know, if you pick an active manager, and the example, the biggest example I gave recently was Warren Buffett, where if you follow the approach I outlined in the book, Buffett beats 98% of all mutual fund managers over the period by 6% a year. However, Buffett has underperformed in seven of the last nine years. So is an investor capable of sticking through a manager that's underperformed that long? Right. No chance. They, they wouldn't have stuck around in three of the past four years, let alone right. nine. Now, Warren can be an exception because he's created a cult for himself, so probably there are uh, those loyal followers. Yeah, totally. I mean, if it's if you've been with Buffett for 20, 30, 40 years, it's a different story. But I think if someone had started to allocate to him in the past, you know, five to ten, then, right. then unlikely. Yeah. Right. But uh, uh, so how do you negate the problem? Because ultimately you follow people who have good records anyway. So, uh, you know, how do you mitigate this particular problem of following the winners? Uh, it's tough, you know, I mean, but it's not <laughs> even it's not even related to the managers. It's how do you come up with an investment strategy that you're going to stick with? And at what point do you um, cut away a particular strategy concept or active manager. And so it, the question becomes much harder if you're using active management than passive because passive, by definition, you know, you're not really allocating to those type of decisions. You're simply buying broad asset classes. So um, for active managers, it's a more subjective process. You can have quantitative inputs, but, you know, if he's going through a nasty divorce or – um, you know, he's getting growing comfortable in his wealth. True. Those are harder subjective questions that have a very real impact on the potential return. And so you know, we've written articles on Dave Einhorn and other people where if you look at their returns for a long time, they were great, and then they really struggled as, as their assets have gotten bigger. They've started to do different things. And you say, is it, at what point do you, you know, to, 
cut those managers away? And I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Yeah, good point. Good point, Mayor, because, you know, I was going through that movie, Trader, where Paul Tudor Jones mentions this. If, if the manager is going through a divorce, uh, uh, cut half his percentage points because that's that's what he's going to get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, <laughs> interesting. Well, I have one last question from my side, Meb. Uh, I want to know, mutual fund industry has changed on its head and it's almost on a downward spiral as more and more people are walk, waking up to the perils of management fees on compounding. Uh, with ETFs and robo-advisors taking their place now, how do you see the future panning out for this industry? What What's the next disruptor? You know, I mean, it's at the end of the day, a lot of these are just structures. And so we are very bullish on ETFs. Um, you know, they are tax efficient. We think they remove a lot of the baggage that traditional mutual funds have through front-end loads, back-end loads, 12B1 fees. Right. And mutual funds were really built to be sold. So, yes, we think ETFs are better. We think that that's a generational process. You've seen the flows, you know, essentially reverse where ETFs are capturing all the flows, mutual funds are bleeding. But the reason being is that, like you said, no one goes from paying 2% a year in a mutual fund to 30 basis points in an ETF and then two years later says, oh, yeah, let's go back to that 2% a year mutual fund. It just doesn't happen. It's a one-way street. So, but but also at the same time, a lot of these mutual funds are held by financial advisors that have been accumulating them for clients for 10, 20, 30 years. And so they're not just going to all go out and sell them all tomorrow, but right. but likely they'll get sold piecemeal as, as the older generation passes on their assets. And, uh, and we think it'll happen in the next 10 years, accelerating. And then will another new structure come on and, and replace ETFs? Who knows? It, uh, but it, either way, it's it's a wonderful time to be an investor, but across all sorts of costs, not just expense ratios on funds, but transaction costs and access. It's a it's much much better time to be an investor um, every year, every month. Right, right. Right. Uh, my last question from my end also, because we have less time with you today. Um, you know, robo advisors is a concept which picked up very fast, and then there has been a lot of uh, I, would, I would say decrease in the fundings by private equity as well and a lot of uh, people. Do you think there is a reason why robo-advisors can not be as uh, great an idea as it seems to be? Or do you think it will be so the disruption in the future? There's two sides to that. There's robo-advisor, the offering for investors, and there's robo-advisor, the business model. And people confuse the two a lot. For the offering for investors, we think it's great. You know, you get a low-cost, rebalanced, tax-optimized portfolio for a very low cost. Most are 0.2% all the way down to Schwab is free. Okay. And with Vanguard, you get a financial advisor. So they all do the same thing, though. So it's buy and hold. If you're young, you're going to have a ton in stocks. Okay. And we think that, you know, we would do it differently where, obviously, read all of our books, we would tilt towards value, tilt towards momentum and trend, right. and add a trend, a trend component. And so I right. think there's better ways to do the portfolio. The biggest challenge, of course, will be none have existed during a big bear market. Right. So um, will their investors be able to behave rationally? I think there's no chance. Right. Uh, if they will do the same dumb things they do, even worse, because they don't have a financial advisor to, to walk them off the cliff. 
Right. And then as, a, then as a business model, we've long said it's going to be eventually dominated by the custodians. So the guys that have uh, their own funds, like a Vanguard and Schwab, because they have a built-in structural advantage, they can offer the, the offering at a lower fee. Right. That's what that's what we've seen happen in the U.S., where Vanguard is larger than all the others combined. It's not even close. Right. And Schwab is in second place. But that doesn't mean that there's not room for five or ten or twenty of them, and everyone we think will have adopted this this digital rebalancing methodology in the next year or two, um, including all. Uh, what is hmm? what what is the biggest hurdle you face when you have to convince people to invest in a automated uh, or let's say you know more quantitative way of running a fund? Uh, what is the biggest hurdle you have faced? Well, we we used to suggest. We used to suggest that the best robo advisor is actually an ETF. You know, we, we run the only ETF with a permanent zero percent management fee and all in costs, I think, are twenty nine basis points, so very low cost. Right. And but the challenge is is education and you know having an investor that's not their own worst enemy. And if you don't have a financial advisor, I think that's very tough to be a logical. Um, stoic investor, as, as one would say, but uh, it's uh, it, it's hard for people. I, I don't think that'll ever change. Okay, After, okay. We're, all, we're all human, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so basically, uh, the whole idea about um, you have is that uh, be quantitative as much as possible, so that your biases doesn't come into picture, and uh, make it as low cost as possible. Yeah, and you know, also it's a it's a bit of a craft too, where you know we, we encourage most investors to be very active in their education, and so that they understand what they're getting into. The worst possible scenario is an investor that doesn't understand what they're invested in, and that's when the emotions can really kick in because they say, "I didn't understand how I could lose fifty percent of this portfolio. I have to sell everything," which is usually the exact wrong way to do it. Great. Great. Thanks a lot, Meb. Uh, that's it from my side. Anything else, Manish? Uh, yeah, that's it from my side as well, Meb. Uh, it was great talking to you. Uh, uh, would you please recommend some people whom you think we should interview? Uh, I will. I'll think about it. I'll shoot over some emails. I'll, I'll, I'll have to scratch my head for a bit. Yeah, you can start by calling Warren and Charlie. <laughs> that will be like a personal uh, podcast there uh, uh, thanks a lot Matt. thank you so much absolutely if I don't see you guys in Omaha come say hello in Los Angeles definitely I'll, I'll be there for sure I book my tickets cool alright guys okay, All right, take, care. Take, care. Good day. take rest now alright